0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in the same group. Today, we'll be talking about recently released proposed regs under Section 367D. The regulations themselves are relatively narrow in scope, primarily only addressing a narrow fact pattern involving the repatriation of previously offshore IP, and do not include other much-awaited and needed guidance addressing broader Section 367D issues. But these regulations will provide welcome relief to certain taxpayers, even if there are some significant limitations to this relief, which we'll get into later in this episode. To help us explore these regulations, we're joined by Steve Massad, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and David Derug, a managing director in the same group. Hello, guys.
1: Hi, Kristen. Hi, Gary. Hey, Chris, and hey, Gary, great to be
2: back. Let's jump right into the topic for today, the proposed Section 367D regs. So we're going to talk about what the regulations say, the issues that they're trying to fix, and then some of the problems with the current regulations as currently drafted. A little bit of background, just to level set before we turn to the proposed regs. Section 367D governs the outbound transfer of IP in certain non-recognition transactions. In general, a transfer of property and an outbound tax-free transfer results in immediate gain, but never loss, under Section 367A. The general rule doesn't apply, however, to transfers of IP in a Section 351 or 361 exchange. Instead, in a tax-free transfer of IP, the transferor is treated as having sold the IP in exchange for payments that are contingent on the property's productivity, use, or disposition of the IP, and that are commensurate with the income that's attributable to the IP. And that's taken into account either annually or in the case of a subsequent direct or indirect disposition of the IP. So either by the transferee foreign corporation itself or through the disposition of the stock of the foreign corporation as a lump sum. So turning to you, David, what are these regulations meant to address and what was the
3: problem? Thanks, Kristen. So as Gary mentioned, these regulations are intended to address a pretty narrow subset of taxpayers that are looking to repatriate IP that was previously offshore in a 367D transaction back to the US. And so, There are a number of rules in the existing regulations that deal with subsequent dispositions of IP, but the rule that's really at issue here and that is addressed by the proposed regulations is a special rule that deals with related party transfers of the IP. So under the current rules, where there is a transfer of the IP to a related party, essentially the U.S. transfer of the IP continues to take into account a 367D inclusion the transferee that received the IP itself would, again, continue to make the annual deem payment, and there would be certain adjustments allowed. But those adjustments are really only allowed in the case of a transfer to a related foreign person. For example, that foreign corporation or foreign person might be allowed to reduce its tested income or subpart F income and its e by the amount of the deemed payment to the U.S. transferor. Where it gets kind of interesting and where these regulations come into play is where the IP is transferred to a related U.S. person. When you look at the current regulations, there really isn't a mechanic in these regulations that would address a situation where the IP is transferred to a related U.S. person. In that case, of course, the U.S. transferee isn't going to have a deduction to offset any subpart F or tested income or tested loss, nor is it going to be able to have any kind of other deduction permitted under the current regulations. So there becomes a situation where the U.S. transferor is still taking into account annual inclusions under 367D, but the transferee, the related U.S. person, isn't allowed to take a deduction against the deemed annual payment.
2: So, David, why is this issue so important now?
3: Well, after the passage of the TCGA, there's been additional incentive to inbound IP, looking, of course, to the reduced rate, the deduction that's eligible for certain types of income under FIDI. And so when taxpayers were thinking about whether they should be repatriating IP, I think the landscape has just fundamentally evolved. And now U.S. taxpayers are taking into account the deduction that is allowed for certain types of services and goods that are exploited in non-U.S. markets, including IP, if it were held directly in the U.S. So this is becoming a more of an acute issue post-TCGA. There's really, I guess you could put it this way, there's less disincentive to having the IP in the U.S. because whether that IP is housed outside of the U.S. in a related foreign corporation or retained in the U.S. by the U.S. company, that IP is going to be taxed currently. So some taxpayers are finding out now that it's a bit more advantageous to align the IP to where the IP is developed, exploited, the usual sort of DMPI markers that tell us how and where the IP should be owned for U.S. tax purposes. Thanks, David. It'll be interesting to see how Pillar 2 and Camp T
0: impacts the location of IP, whether it accelerates the repatriation of IP or it conversely disincentivizes the repatriation. So in any case, excess tax, getting taxed on a 367D royalty and getting no deduction for it doesn't sound like a good thing. Steve, is there any relief under current law from this excessive taxation for uh, taxpayers that repatriate offshore IP? Thanks, Gary.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not a good result. Uh, With this said, the IRS has been willing to issue PLRs under current law to grant relief in circumstances where the IP is repatriated to a member of the U.S. Transfer Ors Consolidated Group. Now, in these PLRs, the IRS used the consolidated return rules governing intercompany transactions. Excluded the 367D payments from the U.S. transferor's gross income once the IP was repatriated back into the consolidated group, not the 367D rules themselves.
0: So obviously, for the PLR route, taxpayers have to take affirmative action. They can't rely on other PLRs issued to other taxpayers. And getting a PLR can be costly and requires the IRS to actually grant it. Are there any limitations to obtaining a PLR? Are there transactions maybe that the IRS wouldn't issue a PLR for?
1: Unfortunately, since the IRS uses the consolidated return rules to address the excessive taxation issue, a PLR is not available for situations where the IP is repatriated to a U.S. person that is not a member of the U.S. Transfer Wars Consolidated Group. But For example, if the IP is repatriated to a related U.S. corporation that is a member of a different U.S. consolidated group as a U.S. transferor, the income from the 367D payments would not be an intercompany item to which the consolidated rules could apply. So in this case, the U.S. transferor would continue to recognize the 367D inclusions, notwithstanding that the related U.S. person would not be getting a related deduction. Also, it is unclear whether the IRS would issue a ruling in a situation where the IP is repatriated back to the U.S. transferor rather than to another member of the U.S. transferor's consolidated group. In this case, there would also not be an intercompany item to exclude from the U.S. transferor's gross income under the consolidated return rules. However, it seems pretty clear that the 367D regime should stop in this instance because the U.S. transfer or shouldn't be deemed to pay itself for the use of the IP that it owns.
2: Thanks, Steve. So clearly there are limitations to the relief, as well as, as Gary mentioned, just sort of practical burdens for the taxpayer to obtain a PLR. So what do the proposed regulations do and what do they say about this issue?
1: The proposed regulations stop the 367D inclusions for the U.S. transfer or if the transferee foreign corporation transfers the IB to a qualified domestic person or a QDP and certain reporting requirements are met.
2: So, Steve, the really unfortunate thing about these proposed regs that we will talk about is that while they do provide relief, they are prospective only and there isn't reliance language. So, taxpayers are not explicitly permitted to rely on them. David, is there a sense here of whether the government may provide retroactive relief or are we stuck with the PLR route for now?
3: Kristen, that's the million-dollar question I think a lot of taxpayers have asked and would love to see some sort of retroactivity. At this point, some folks in the IRS have said that the government is being especially cautious but that they might consider potential tweaks to the applicability date when and if these regs are finalized. We've also heard, and the IRS has mentioned, that they hope that these regulations would be finalized expeditiously. But of course, we don't have a crystal ball, so we can just sit and hope that these regulations will be finalized and that perhaps there will be some retroactive relief for taxpayers who are taking repatriation transactions into consideration right now. Thanks, David. I think there's a very good chance that they
0: could go retroactive, but how much are you willing... risk on that chance. So let's talk about the mechanics of the proposed regs and how they operate to turn off the Section 367d inclusion going forward. Steve, you've mentioned that for the inclusion to stop, the IP needs to be repatriated to a qualified domestic person or a QDP. What is a QDP and how does the new definition compare to the relief taxpayers could get under the consolidated return rules through a PLR?
1: A QDP is the U.S. transfer or a successor to the U.S. transfer or that is either a U.S. individual or taxable U.S. corporation or a U.S. individual or taxable U.S. corporation related to the U.S. transfer or successor. So now an example of a successor. To the U.S. transferor is a U.S. person that acquired the stock in the transferee foreign corporation from the U.S. transferor after the original outbound IP transfer. So think about a situation where you have the U.S. transferor, it transfers IP outbound to a CFC, and then when a subsequent reorganization of the group transfers the stock of the CFC to another member of its U.S. consolidated group through a, a share transfer, that subsequent transferee would step into the shoes and become a successor to the U.S. transfer war. Now, the definition of QDP is helpful to the taxpayers because it expands the situations in which relief is available for repatriating IP. As noted earlier, the PLRs are currently available only where the IP is repatriated to a member of the U.S. TransferOr's Consolidated Group. Since the QDP definition is not limited to members of the U.S. Transfer Consolidated Group and includes the US Transfer itself, proposed regulations address situations where the IP is repatriated to related, non-consolidated US persons or to the US transfer itself. Now, interestingly, a US partnership is not a QDP even if all of its partners are U.S. individuals and taxable U.S.
3: corporations.
2: So why would the government exclude partnerships from the definition of a QDP?
3: Thanks, Kristen. That's an interesting question. The Treasury and the IRS had considered permitting a U.S. partnership to be a QDP, and in this approach, they would have treated the U.S. partnership as an aggregate of its partners, such that the partners would be treated as engaged in any kind of activities that the partnership itself had undertaken. When considering this approach, the preamble notes that the Treasury and the IRS were thinking about various ways in which taxpayers might try to circumvent or take steps or undertake transactions that might be contrary to the purposes of 367D. For example, it's noted that partnership allocations could be changed after the repatriation or perhaps the transferee foreign corporation or maybe even a related foreign corporation could have certain liquidation rights to the IP after the transfer. The issue with respect to partnerships is complicated, and the treatment under 367-D is just not so easy to understand. And so it seemed that the drafters thought that the aggregate approach would just be too complicated for determining the extent to which the inclusion under 367-D should continue or end with respect to various partners in the U.S. partnership.
0: Okay, so let's assume we repatriate IP to a QDP That turns off the Section 367 D inclusion Is there any toll charge associated with this now inbounding transaction, Steve? Yeah, Gary. So it depends on how the IP
1: is repatriated. The proposed regulations have two operative rules, the application of which depends on whether the repatriation results in the IP being treated as so-called transfer basis property. And transfer basis property is property that is acquired from a transferor and has a basis that is determined in whole or in part by reference to the basis of the property in the hands of the transferor. So think non-recognition transactions with or without boot. If the IP is transfer basis property and the repatriation is fully tax-free, so for example an inbound section 332 liquidation, then the U.S. transferor does not recognize gain and the QDP's basis in the IP is the lesser of the U.S. transfer or its former basis in the IP, so the basis as of the original outbound transfer, or the Transferee Foreign Corporation's basis in the IP immediately before the repatriation. So this lesser of rule seems to have been included in the regulations to address situations where Transferee Foreign Corporation has amortized the IP. However, if the repatriation transaction includes boot so that it's partially tax-free, then the U.S. transferor recognizes the amount of gain the transferee foreign corporation would recognize if it had the U.S. transferor's former basis in the IP. And the QDP's basis in the IP is increased by the greater of the gain recognized by the U.S. transferor or the transferee foreign corporation on the repatriation. So in both cases, the transferee foreign corporation reduces its gross income in E&P by the amount of gain recognized by the U.S. transferor. Now, it's this reduction to the gross income of the transferee foreign corporation that is what's addressing the excessive taxation on the repatriation of the IP because it's eliminating income at the transferee foreign corporation level while still allowing the 367D regime
0: to apply to the U.S. transfer or. So, Steve, what happens if the IP is not transferred basis property that is not transferred in a non-recognition transaction? Hey, Gary, in that case, the U.S.
1: transfer or recognizes gain equal to the current fair market value of the IP on the date of the repatriation over its former basis in the IP. For example... If the transferee foreign corporation distributes the IP to the U.S. transferor in a taxable 311B distribution, the U.S. transferor recognizes gain in the amount of the difference between the fair market value of the IP and its former basis in the IP. As with the transfer basis property rules, the transferee foreign corporation reduces its gross income and EMP by the amount of gain recognized by the U.S. transferor. Now, I should also mention that in all cases, so both with respect to transfer basis, property transaction, and other transactions, the U.S. transfer must include a 367D inclusion for the portion of the year before the repatriation.
0: So, what's the purpose of requiring gain recognition here? Ultimately, the prodigal son has returned. Why are his parents charging him back rent?
3: Well, I think we're met with another equally important economic principle, but that there is no free lunch. And so the purpose of these rules is such that the QDP, the domestic person that receives EIP in the repatriation transaction, doesn't potentially receive a tax-free increase to the basis, while also trying to make sure that the transfer foreign corporation doesn't have excessive taxation.
1: Yeah, but the gain recognition rule still has some uncertainty, in particular as regards patriations of IP that have previously been transferred in taxable transactions. So, for example, assume that we have a U.S. transferor that transfers IP to a first-tier foreign corporation and a 351 exchange, which then subsequently transfers the IP to a lower-tier foreign corporation and another 351 exchange, so back-to-back 351 exchanges. Under the current 367D regulations, the lower tier foreign corporation becomes the transferee foreign corporation and the US transferor has 367D inclusions with respect to that lower tier corporation. Now, if the group subsequently decides to repatriate the IP by distributing it through the chain of ownership, the lower tier foreign corporation recognizes gain on its distribution of the IP to the upper tier foreign corporation. And the upper tier foreign corporation does not realize gain on its distribution of the IP to the U.S. transferor. Under the non-transferred basis property rules, the U.S. transferor would recognize gain equal to the fair market value of the IP at the time of the repatriation over its former basis in the IP. However, there would be no reduction to the gross income of the lower tier foreign corporation because the lower tier foreign corporation recognizes gain in a transaction preceding the repatriation. On the other hand, if the upper-tier foreign corporation were to repatriate the IP received from the lower-tier corporation through an inbound non-recognition transaction, for example, an inbound F reorganization, the transfer basis property rules would apply. Thus, the U.S. transferor would not recognize gain under the proposed regulations, but it would be required to write down the basis of the IP to its former basis thus eliminating the basis step-up from the lower-tier foreign corporation's taxable
2: distribution. So, in thinking about the rules and the proposed regs, one question that I had is whether you can use a transfer of IP to a QDP to turn off the Section 367 deemed royalty. So, in other words, transfer the IP to a qualified domestic person, and then subsequently transfer the IP to someone that's not a QDP. So, for example, a related foreign person. David, would that work under the proposed regs? So
3: the proposed regulations have somewhat anticipated these types of transactions where taxpayers might think about potentially moving the IP up to a qualified domestic person then over to someone in the group that may not qualify as a QDP. So to address these types of transactions, there is a special rule in the proposed regulations that would address subsequent or multiple related transfers of the IP. And if this special rule applies, whether the 367D inclusion is extinguished depends on the identity of the ultimate recipient of the IP. So take, for example, if the IP is inbounded to a QDP and then as part of that transaction or maybe other related transactions involving the IP, that IP is disposed of to perhaps any other person in the group, including through multiple dispositions, then the initial transferee is treated as a QDP only if the ultimate recipient of the IP is a QDP. So in this respect, the proposed regulations would ask effectively, where does the IP reside once all of these related transactions have taken place. There are a couple of examples in the regulations that illustrate how these rules would apply. For example, in one of those situations, there is a transfer of IP to a domestic corporation that is a member of a consolidated group that includes the original U.S. transferor. Then in a related transaction, that transferee, the domestic corporation, transfers the IP to to a related foreign corporation. And then the example concludes that the transfer by the transfer foreign corporation to the domestic corporation in the repat transaction isn't eligible for relief under the proposed regulations
0: it should be noted this is a one way street if the initial transfer is to a non qdp like for instance a domestic partnership the a subsequent transfer to a qdp isn't going to provide relief right so It should be noted that the related party transaction doesn't work both ways. David, the proposed regs also provide guidance on other international tax provisions, particularly the foreign tax credit rules. Can you tell us a little bit about
3: how those rules would be impacted under the proposed regs? Sure. So the proposed regulations, as you mentioned, do include some rules that would address how IP should be treated when it's transferred between uh, a foreign branch and its owner or vice versa with respect to certain types of disregarded transactions or DIRTS under the 904 regulation. So the current 904 regulation rules broadly provide that the gross income of a branch must be adjusted using, quote, the principles of Section 367D and 42. And those rules don't really have any further color or gloss on how those principles ought to apply in the context of determining how to attribute income to the branch or to the foreign branch owner for purposes of determining the foreign tax credit. The proposed regulations would come in and provide a little bit more clarity, one might say, in that if the IP is transferred in a series of disregarded transactions, say, for example, IP is transferred from the branch to the branch owner, or perhaps it's a southbound transaction where the foreign branch owner is transferring IP down to the foreign branch, if there are successive transfers of IP, the rules that we've been talking about here would not apply to those types of transactions for purposes of the foreign tax credit. Instead, the preamble to the proposed regulations say that the scope and purposes of the 367D regs are very different from the 904 branch regulations. And so if there are multiple IP transfers, each transfer stands on its own. It has to be evaluated on its own merit. And if it results in different types of attribution to the branch or the branch owner, so be it. And that can be an interesting question, especially where there's changes in value of the IP between each transfer And there are also interesting questions that taxpayers will need to address with respect to the rules under Section 904 that deal with ordering of multiple disregarded payments. So a lot of developments here that we'll have to continue to take a closer look at.
2: So we've spent a lot of time today talking about what's actually included in these proposed regs, but I think it's also important to talk about what's not included. Steve, what issues weren't addressed and what areas are we still waiting on guidance for in the Section 367D space?
1: Yeah, thanks, Kristen. You know, as we said at the top of the podcast, these proposed regulations are potentially limited in scope and only really address a narrow issue of repatriating previously offshore IP. One big issue that taxpayers have been struggling with over the years since 367D has been enacted is, is how is basis recovered? With respect to 367D transfers, a lot of times 367D applies to transfers with zero basis properties, so self-created intangibles in the U.S. are then subsequently outbounded into IP, so the basis recovery doesn't pop up in, in that factual situation. However, if the U.S. transferor had basis in the IP, let's say it purchased the IP from a third party so that it wasn't self-created by the U.S. transferor, and subsequently transferred that IP offshore in a 367D transaction. And it's unclear as to what happens to that basis that the U.S. transfer war had at the time of the outbound. Is you know, it carryover because we do at the time have a 351 exchange, and then is it amortizable at the CFC level? Or is it part of a contingent sale regime and taken into account by the U.S. transfer war? So those are big questions that are inherent and have been inherent in the 367D regime for quite some time and that just go unanswered by the proposed regulations.
2: So thank you, Steve and David, for joining Gary and I today and talking through the new Section 367D proposed regs. It seems that the key takeaway from our discussion today is that there is some relief on the way for taxpayers looking to repatriate offshore IP. But while we wait for these regs to be finalized, which, as David said, hopefully will be soon, taxpayers wanting to repatriate offshore at IP must affirmatively seek relief through a PLR or risk continued income inclusions going forward. And as far as the much needed guidance on more general Section 367 D issues, I guess we're gonna to have to wait a little bit longer for that. So as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care.